morning. Uh, as Lee said, uh, my name is Jason. I'm a summer pastoral intern here at Grace and Peace. Uh, I have the stewardship of bringing God's word to us this morning. Uh, the last time I preached, which was two Sundays ago, we looked at a passage in the Gospel of Luke. This time we'll be looking at a passage from the letter written from Paul the Apostle to the Thessalonian church. You can find 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-16 through 16, on page 573 in the light blue pew Bibles in front of you. Now, before we begin, let's pray. Lord Father, um, thank you for this morning. Thank you for gathering us and protecting us. I pray, Father, for our hearts and our minds, um, that we, as we come and hear your word, that we may be attentive and um, be ready to hear what you have uh, for us to be taught. So I uh, pray that would be happening. In Jesus' name, amen. My college ministry staff leaders used to always say Christian growth equals grace plus truth, truth plus time. And it was one of those things, and I think you kids would relate to this, where you hear so much you stop listening. Like you understand it's true, but you let the advice go in one ear and out the other. You become numb to it. Now, I was also a young Christian and a student leader already for our, for our ministry, which added to my ignorance. But basically what they were saying is that genuine Christian growth only happens in the context of grace plus truth, truth plus time. You can't grow to be more like Christ in isolation. You need to be in a community of people that exemplifies the grace of Jesus, tells the truth of Jesus, and then wait. Hopefully that is being accomplished for you in this church. Now, whenever I heard Christian growth equals grace plus truth plus time, I always thought time was an unusual thing to include into that equation. I had no problems with grace because I, I could always surround myself with gracious and loving Christians, and I can certainly meditate on the gracious aspect of the gospel more. I also had no problems with truth, too. I just need to surround myself with wise Christians, listen to more good sermons, and spend more time in the Bible. Time, on the other hand, I couldn't do anything with that one. I think there was a desire within me to gain a lifetime of Christian growth in my 20s. Sounds foolish, um, but when you are a young Christian, you don't recognize that. You think that you can speed up your own Christian growth and learn all that you need to know to live the Christian life faster than anybody else. But over time, you realize that it's not happening. Even though you are growing, life is still hard. As a result, you maybe start questioning the gospel message and how you came to believe it. You know, maybe I'm doing this Christian thing wrong. Maybe this uh, message is not even true. I think all of us would agree that we want the Christian life to be easy. But it isn't. I was talking to another pastor this past week, and he was telling me this. I wish I could just insert a computer chip into my head and download all the things that I need to know. It's a noble desire, uh, but also very unrealistic. You see, we're at the mercy of time, and also at the mercy of God who causes our growth through time. In this letter to the Thessalonians, we will see a young church who has experienced great growth. But now time is testing them. They are past the honeymoon phase and experiencing some difficult hardship. 
messages contrary to the gospel are bombarding them. Jews and Gentiles are saying the gospel message is false and accusing Paul of being ingenuine. You know that Paul guy? You can't trust him in his message. Worse yet, the Thessalonians were alone. Due to persecution, Paul had to leave abruptly. And in those days, you can't text or call Paul. They couldn't ask him for some quick advice or response to his accusers. They didn't know if he was coming back or or even if he wanted to come back. As a result, they were questioning the gospel message and the integrity of Paul who first shared it with them. Is this gospel really true? Did Paul lie to us? Should we be living a different type of life? And who can blame him for these questions, right? Paul, Silas, and Timothy, wise Christians, were no longer there to help these young Christians grow. But like a loving mother and father to their child, Paul comes to them in a letter, a heartfelt letter. And this is what he basically says. Because the gospel is at work, we can live the Christian life. Because the gospel is at work, we can live the Christian life. With that said, let's go ahead and read the first section of our passage today. Um, It's verses 1 through 12. Uh, It deals with how Paul and his missionary team of Silas and Timothy uh, live differently amongst the Thessalonian believers. So I'm going to go ahead and read, uh, starting in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though that we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretexts for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. If you are familiar with Paul's letters, uh, you may know that there's a lot of doctrine in them. He has a gift for explaining the truthfulness of the gospel. He, has a rather, uh, he is rather good at rhetoric or persuasion, you might say. I do not know many people who would argue that God used the wrong person to advance the gospel to his Gentile world. In these first 12 verses, I think we see further proof that God has given Paul unique ability to persuade. But these 12 verses aren't another example of Paul giving more doctrine or proofs. 
It's persuasion by a different route. And I think it's a route more difficult to pull off. When I was in high school, I remember learning the three ways of rhetoric. You have logos, pathos, and ethos. Logos is the appeal to logic or reason. Pathos is the appeal to emotion. And ethos is the appeal through character or credibility. If someone were to try to sell me a car, a good salesman would try to use all three rhetorical methods to convince me to buy this car. Now, what usually hurts a car salesman is probably his ethos, his credibility and character. It's it's a problem because we aren't sure if he means well or not. Are his motives pure? Very rarely does a car salesman only resort to saying, trust me. Ethos is a difficult persuasion method uh, because you're now putting your whole character on the same line as your argument. But amazingly, that's what we see here from Paul. He puts his own character on the line. If you notice in these 12 verses, he keeps saying, you know, or you remember, or you are witnesses. What should the Thessalonians know, remember, or be witnesses of? It's Paul's character. His character was to be like a string, and you were supposed to follow that string to the gospel. In other words, Paul's character provides a window to the truthfulness of the gospel. And you see, you look to that window by how he lived amongst the Thessalonians. Well, how did he exactly live? There's a lot here that Paul says, and I won't dive into every word. But I think it's helpful to organize his thoughts like this. How he didn't live, and then how he did live. So first, we're going to look at how he didn't live. Starting in verse 2, Paul mentions how, in it, how he and his team lived without comfort. They had, been, they had just been, suffered, uh, been suffering and been shamefully treated for sharing the gospel in a, in a city called Philippi. If you look in uh, Acts 16, you don't have to go there now, uh, but it's recorded what exactly happened to Paul and his team. It says they were publicly stripped naked, beaten with rods, and taken to prison. Not exactly pleasant, right? Yet what we see is that this didn't stop Paul and Silas on their next stop to Thessalonica to share the gospel. So it seems comfort was not a motivating factor for Paul and his team. In verses 3 through 6, Paul acknowledges other well-known motivators of humanity, sex, money, and power. The Thessalonians were also aware of this fact. Uh, Thessalonica was a rather large city in the Roman Empire, and it was also a port city as well. Uh, As a result, there were many people who came and tried their hand at making a profit, whether that be sexually, uh, financially, or um, influentially. Paul is saying he's not like any of those people. For instance, if you look in verse 3, Paul mentions the word impurity. This was a well-known word to the Thessalonians, and they would have understood that this had a sexual connotation. Two verses later, he says he came with no pretext for greed. In the next verse, he says he did not come to seek his own glory. He even denies the power that he had because he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Impurity, greed, and glory, also known as sex, money, and power. None of these motivated Paul and his companions. His motive was rather pure. 
He says their motive was to please God since the message they had was not their own. They were, in, they were, to entrust, they were entrusted with a God-given message of grace and truth and only desired to please God. But what does pleasing God look like? It looks like the way that Paul and his team lived. Starting in verse 7, what Paul says next is quite amazing. Paul doesn't just say he's a good-intentioned messenger. He doesn't even say that he was just a good friend. Instead, pleasing God meant going a step above. He says he acted as a mother and father to the Thessalonians. In an uh, ethos-type argument, this is quite a claim. This could kill his argument if this weren't true. But Paul is being serious here. Paul has a love that rivals that of parents for their own children. Look with me at verse 7. He says he was gentle like a nursing mother. In verses 11 and 12, he says he exhorted and encouraged them like a father. It's quite amazing because Paul was only with them for a short amount of time before he had to leave. Parents, I think you can relate to this. When your child was born, you knew you loved him or her. Coming out of the womb, you didn't know how they were going to look, act, or talk. Yet you already knew you were willing to give your life for that child, even before they were born. And that's what Paul does. Gave his life to the Thessalonians. He practiced what I would call relational type ministry. You don't just share the gospel, but you live out the gospel in relationship with others. In verse 8 he says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. The best kind of ministry is relational. Uh, my whole ministry has experienced, my whole, whole ministry experience has continually taught me that. That doesn't mean I'm perfect at it, but I'm learning. Um, I started learning that when I was in college. Uh, my college mentor and I, we met once a week for discipleship um, for two years. Uh, even though we did that, he always told me that discipleship was not once a week thing, but it was a seven day a week thing. It's not just when you formally meet to do a Bible lesson, but it's also when you hang out in the times between. It's when you share life. I saw what it meant to live for Jesus by being with him. It's also how I knew that he loved me. As I moved on from college into vocational ministry, uh, that principle has stuck with me and continually proved itself over and over again in my time overseas and in St. Louis. One such time was through a story told to me by another overseas missionary. He was telling me about his uh, work and this person that he helped lead to faith in Jesus. He said he was working with this person for the longest time and that he was sharing the gospel over and over again with him. When that person eventually placed faith in Christ, a missionary friend asked him, hey, what finally convinced you? And what he said was really surprising. Remember that time you had me over at your home? When your wife poured me that cup of tea, that's when I knew. That's when I knew that, when the, that's when I knew that this gospel was different. I saw and felt the love of the gospel when your wife poured me that cup of tea. 
You see, the best kind of ministry is relational. My missionary friend put a lot of stock in his gospel arguments and presentations, but what convinced his friend of the truthfulness of the gospel wasn't any of that. Instead, it was a simple hospitable gesture of pouring a cup of tea in the context of sharing his home. Friends, uh, Paul appeals to his character not to puff himself up. He appeals to his character to show the truthfulness of the gospel. He truly believed in it. He needed the Thessalonians to believe that he wasn't a phony, that he wasn't fake and his message wasn't fake. Paul and his team were truly changed by the gospel. Now combine that with their parental-type love for the Thessalonians, it's a compelling message. I think for us, this should challenge us believers. Now we should also recognize we aren't Paul and his buddies. Um, They were called to be missionaries and church planners in a very unique time. We, on the other hand, have different callings, right? We all, yet what we all share with them is the same gospel motive. We all have neighbors, coworkers, family members, and friends, right? We have people that we are in relationship with and also people that we could potentially be in relationship with. Now, do these people know your gospel? Once again, you don't need to have the same giftness as Paul. Uh, Paul, you know, appeals to his character here. We all, have, we all can have character, right? how we love and act towards others. Character is who we are at the core level. This may be a bit daunting, though. Um, In the way that Paul describes his character, it's a very tall order. You may still be saying, this is Paul the Apostle. Of course he has such a character. There is no one like him. Fair enough. There's no one like Paul, right? I think I agree with that. But there's also nothing like the gospel. Now, what do I mean by that? I think the dilemma that we are now rubbing up against is the idea of Christian, how Christian growth occurs. How in the world does Paul even have a character like the one that he just described? Because what we know from Scripture is that he wasn't always like that. As we transition to our last section of this passage... I think we will find our answer. So join with me as I read uh, verses 13 through 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but also as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. In the first 12 verses, uh, we looked at how Paul lived. Um, But what you see here in these last verses is that Paul changes course and draws attention to how the Thessalonians lived. Look with me at uh, verse 13. Paul says he is thankful for how the Thessalonians 
accepted the gospel. And he's specifically thankful that they saw the gospel not as a man-made message, but as a God-made message. And I think this is a good thing that Paul brings up. You see, in the face of opposition, it was no small thing that the Thessalonians believed in the gospel. It's actually quite remarkable. Any man-made message would most uh, likely have failed in such circumstances. But the gospel is not like any other man-made message. What is special about the gospel is not only is it from God, but it also has the power of God. If you look at the end of verse 13, Paul says this, The word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now this is a rather short statement, but a pretty profound one. We don't want to miss it. The word of God is at work. A similar idea is mentioned earlier in Paul's letter as well. Uh, So going back to chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, he says this, uh, For we know, brothers, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came came to you not only in word, but also in power. So what we see is the word of God has power, and the word of God is at work. I think this is a fundamental idea. What Paul wants us to remember, wants them to remember, and encourage them with, is that there's something that is molding them, shaping them, something that is working on them, and it's the word of God. Sure, he points out they have received and accepted it, but it's because the word of God took root and is helping helping them grow in their understanding of it. In Hebrews 4.12, it says this about the Word of God. It says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now you may be asking, How do we know that the Word of God is living and active? I physically can't see the Word working on someone. That's true, but you can see the results of it. And that is what Paul is pointing out in the remaining verses. He shows the Thessalonians that the Word of God is working in them because of how they live out the Word of God. In Paul's day, he only knew of a few groups of people that lived out the Word of God. He starts listing them in verse 14. Uh, The first one is the churches in Judea. So Judea was a region within Israel, and it's where Paul and his team, uh, where they were sent from. The Thessalonian church was essentially the church plant, uh, and the churches in Judea were uh, the churches that made it happen. In verse 15, we have the others that Paul knew. Uh, He lists them, the, the Lord Jesus the prophets, and his own missionary team. And what do the Thessalonians share in common with these people? They share in a common suffering. To Paul, that common experience of suffering revealed what was truly going on in the hearts of the Thessalonians. Suffering is an interesting thing. It's definitely not to be desired, um, and I don't want to make light of how difficult it is. All of us have gone through or, or are going through something that is truly difficult, something hard to talk about, even let alone just go through. But if you will, let's step outside of suffering for a moment and let's analyze it. 
I think in a mysterious way, it's, a, it's an important thing. It, it does an important thing. It tests. Lee, uh, he took me a few weeks ago uh, to Louisville uh, for a test. Um, I wasn't the one being tested, thankfully, uh, but we were going to be part of a test of a young man. Uh, he was pursuing ordination within this denomination. So, and to become ordained in the PCA, it's a pretty lengthy and rigorous process. Uh, Lee and I, we were only going to be witnessing the final step of, this, uh, of what was a two-year journey for this young man. In this gathering, this young man had to field questions from elders and pastors. He had to answer questions pertaining to, theolo- pertaining to theology, biblical languages, uh, church history, and certain values of our denomination. It took about three hours, um, but it's not unheard of for it to go longer. What's crazy is that this is only a small snippet of the whole process. Um, Before the final step, you have to go through an education, an internship, such as the one I'm doing right now, Uh, interviews on character, and written and oral examinations. It's a grueling process that happens over a course of a few years. It's a time of suffering, as PCA pastors say. Um, But what's great about this process is that this suffering reveals something within. Is God calling this man to be a pastor? Is God working in this man? You see, the process isn't what validates this man for ordained ministry. Instead, the ordination process reveals what is already true about a man and his call to ordained ministry. In other words, if the formal process never existed, a person who is called will still kind of do pastor-type things in the way he lives his life. It's who he is. Now, I'm not advocating for us to get rid of the process. Um, It's still very important because it weeds out men who may incorrectly judge that they are called and also encourage people who may be hesitant to think that they are called. But in any case, the suffering process is helpful because it reveals something that is true within them. In the same way, Paul is showing the Thessalonians that their suffering reveals what is already true about them. The Word of God is powerfully working in them. At the end of the day, it's the Word of God that is changing their hearts and changing their lives. It's no surprise to Paul that this church is imitating the churches in Judea. So what does this mean for us? I think it's pretty clear that we're not the Thessalonian church. Uh, We exist about 2,000 years after them. And we exist in a culture very different from theirs. Our culture isn't physically persecuting us. Uh, We aren't being stripped naked, being with rods, or taken to prison for our faith in Jesus. Now, unfortunately, that is a reality for many of our Christian brothers and sisters across the world. Um, And they would find great encouragement and application from this passage. But for us, uh, we are a northern Kentucky church in the 21st century. Despite the differences, I think this passage is still speaking to us. If we have placed faith in Jesus, we are still God's people. And since we are God's people, we all still face a common dilemma. How do I continue to grow in my Christian faith. And I think this is our connection point to the Thessalonians. 
Our circumstances are different, um, but our dilemma is the same. We all go through life wondering, how do I grow in my love for the Lord? How do I grow in my love for other people? Or maybe, how do I trust the Lord when times get tough? These are all normal questions. If you remember, I began this sermon with an equation. Christian growth equals grace plus truth plus time. Several years have passed since I first heard it, um, and thankfully I think I understand it a bit more than I used to. Um, And one thing that I've realized in this equation is that nowhere in it can you find me. It does not say Christian growth equals Jason's abilities plus time. The equation was never about me. But I do want to suggest it's about someone else. John 1.14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what we see from John is that we learn the Word has become, uh, became flesh, and this Word is full of grace and truth. And from Paul, we just learned that the Word is at work in believers. Friends, Jesus is that word. He is the one who enables faith in Christian character. He is grace and truth. So let me go back to that equation that I mentioned and make a little modification. Christian growth equals Jesus plus time. What was true about the Thessalonians was that they believed in Jesus. And this Jesus was causing their Christian growth. For Paul, he believed in Jesus too. And this Jesus was also causing his Christian growth. So I think uh, I'll leave us with this question. Um, what What is that question for us? Do you also believe in Jesus? Let me conclude our time with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you are working in our hearts. That although we question um, this life, what we're trying to do, how to love you, how to live out uh, the gospel, we can find confidence knowing that the word of God is at work. That through your grace and truth, over time, you are making us more like Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.